0: Zazz and Gunner put a plan in place before the merger and it's working. This company is paying down its extraordinary debt load and analysts who follow the sector are becoming believers.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, February 27th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I talk about earnings at Warner Brothers Discovery and what their call says about the company, including an important mention of MILF Manor. And we get into trust issues with the media and what can be done about it. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of the Powers That Be. So trust me on this one, visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. Happy Monday, everybody. March is almost here. Spring is around the corner. March Madness. But if it's Monday, it's Media Monday, which means I'm joined by John Kelly. How are you, buddy?
0: I'm good, Peter. I wanted to um, start the show by planting a provocative thought in your mind. I heard an interesting thought the other day that... A man near and dear to you, the head coach of your alma mater, Georgetown Hoyas, my childhood hero, Patrick Ewing, is probably not long for this world as a head coach of a Big East team. How would you feel if Rick Bettino came in to Georgetown and took over the program? Could you get behind that? Pitino obviously has had a ton of scandals, an alleged pretty bad dude, but uh, an unassailable winner.
1: Uh, before we get into the program, I, I need your thoughts. This is a fascinating discussion. One, if you scooped Ewing getting forced out despite his monster renewal contract, which was a joke. Good for you. Good scoop. (laughs) I hope that's coming. I think that's coming. Georgetown basketball fans are very depressed to the point I haven't I've watched one and a half games this year on television. Like I will turn on college basketball and I'd rather watch like Creighton play Villanova on Fox Sports One than any Georgetown game. It's really bad. And like I'm like a proud alum. I follow a lot of like Georgetown basketball. Twitter feeds and group texts with all my friends. If you had said Patino like four years ago or whenever they hired Ewing, we would have been like, Ugh, fuck no. Like he is the worst. Like I put Patino up there with coach K, not in terms of personal scandals, but just in terms of like hateability. But now in my Georgetown basketball feeds, people would be fine with that. Literally like Rick goddamn Patino coming in. I think we'd all be okay with it because losing uh, historic losing streaks in the Big East in conference, like only winning one conference game a year. Like, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. And this is one other thing. And by the way, this gets into how the media works. You saw this coming when Patrick Ewing got hired. For oh, people who I don't know. Follow college oh. basketball. Patrick Ewing, obviously NBA legend, you know, if you're a Knicks fan, one of probably the most famous Georgetown basketball alum. He was Definitely. an assistant coach in the NBA and was always looking for that head coaching job. And then when he got hired, there were all kinds of people that he worked for or knew in the NBA who, you know, said of the Georgetown hire, either on the record or on background, he deserves a shot. He's been around so long. Like, he deserves this. And if you looked at that, no one was saying, this guy's a brilliant basketball mind. He's a comer when it comes to coaching. It was just like, this feels very patronizing. And this doesn't feel right. Like, no one was, like, lavishing praise on him in any way. As a coach, other than he could possibly like motivate big men, you know, in the middle and like help them with be post players. And it was just like, this just doesn't feel right reading the media coverage of this. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, Georgetown you know, can't get out of its like v- old school mindset where it's like, you're allowed to hire people uh, that didn't play for John Thompson or right. are related to John Thompson or coach for John Thompson. Like, once Georgetown basketball gets out of the goddamn mindset that we're still a great power like in basketball, that's only when we're going to come back because we are a mid-major basketball team with lower-than-average facilities and an off-campus arena deal that's like filled to 10% capacity at this point for home games. It's a joke, and Rick Pitino would be fine. John, I want to talk about something sort of meta about journalism in a minute. Um, I'm going to a very elite secretive journalism conference uh, in New York later today as we record this. And there's a couple discussion topics that I think you would have some thoughts on. But first, I want to talk about what's in the news and media, which is Warner Brothers Discovery. We talk about them a lot. We talk about Zaslav all the time and sort of all of the things on the Warner Brothers Discovery flywheel, HBO, CNN, etc. cetera. Their yeah. earnings call came out. Wasn't great, my friend. Wasn't great. What does it say to you? Well, let's
0: keep the basketball metaphor rolling. And um, if you remember from White Man Can't Jump, Rosie Perez has that great line, you know, when she says to Woody Harrelson, Billy, sometimes when you win, you really lose. And sometimes when you lose, you really win. And and I think that actually is the story with the Warner Brothers Discovery earnings. Obviously, we're obsessed with David Zaslov here. Some of that obsession comes from me. Uh, i Personally, I, I find him a sort of exhilarating, transformative figure who's who's lived through a number of, of transformative moments in media. And to be sure, they posted a significant loss. I think it was about 11 billion in fourth quarter revenue, maybe 11.1. I think that they were the guidance had 11.3. They predicted that the stock would would drop a couple cents per share, and they lost $2 billion in the quarter. So headline is that that's not great. But on the other hand, there are some very significant things going on here that when you dig further are very, very illuminating. The first is that they are continuing to quietly pay down this enormous debt. I think when we first started talking about this company when it, when it merged you know almost a year ago now it was like 54 billion in combined debt it's down to 45 and a half now i think they paid down a billion in debt just this quarter alone they paid down yeah, i guess 7 plus and some merger closed and the losses in streaming and this is like a take it on the chin number the losses in streaming were a couple hundred million dollars which comparative mm-hmm. to their peer set is staggeringly little, and the Warner Brothers Discovery stock is up like 50% this year. I mean, it, it, it had nosedived and sort of cratered to an abnormally low number around Thanksgiving time, and it, it's been rising ever since. So it, it tells you something fascinating here, which is that this company is, is not being judged on... The projections of the number of subscribers that they're going to add. I think HBO Max added like a million. And, you know, they've made this decision that they're going to leave Discovery Plus out of this so that they can have a, a lower tier for people who who only want to pay a couple bucks for Dr. Pimple Popper. They're being judged on their debt load <laughs> and on their operational efficiency, on their profitability, on EBITDA. And in that regard, Matt actually had a good line about this on, on Thursday night. Zaz and Gunner. Put a plan in place before the merger, and it's working now. This company is paying down its extraordinary debt load, which was incredibly unhealthy, And analysts who follow the sector are becoming believers. And it it reminded me of a moment 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less, I was in a room with a very, very big TV executive who'd been, he worked at Comcast. And Comcast, as you know, had put hundreds of millions of dollars into a lot of like Web 2.0 digital media companies. And this person was saying, and we were like, you know, mid-flight in the kind of BuzzFeed and refinery and, and Vox era. And, and this person said very declaratively, oh, it doesn't make money. You know, that world doesn't make money, at least not compared to what he was used to. And I think Zaz um, and that person turned out to be right. I think you know, they may have missed some things, but but they turned out to be right about some of those Web 2.0 companies. Zaz is saying that the enthusiasm and euphoria about the unending subscriber growth in streaming misses the point. These are media companies that have to operate profitably, and you can obtain a lot more value on like a per show basis. You don't need to greenlight 500 shows to build your streamer. You only need a couple of hits, and you um, and you can win on operational excellence rather than creative unbelt tightened potentially reckless creative freedom, which was sort of the modus operandi under the Jason Kalar era. So it's, um, of course, you know, Zaz's belt-tightening theory doesn't apply to his own compensation. You know, if the stock pops, the guy's going to make like $250 million. So um, you know, he's an outlier there, but it's an interesting pivot in this industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, also the pivot is toward reality, it seems like, and away from like spending a lot of money on very premium things, not competing with Netflix in that sense, and more MILF Manor. I think that's the future for Warner Brothers Discovery, more shows like MILF Manor on DLC. <laughs> hey John, when we come back, uh, you know, I wanna do something that journalists aren't really good at, which is publicly reflect on our mistakes and what we can do better. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, John, before we get into this part of the segment, I do want to give a shout-out to a fan who emailed us, uh, Neil Chabra, and he was uh, asking us about a conversation we had, I think, last week about podcasting and, you know, its health (laughs) as a business, and we gave a shout-out to a bunch of successful podcasts and companies like Crooked Media, Daily Wire, The Daily, Um, and he Mm -hmm. said, why no mention of The Ringer? Uh, And I don't know if we mentioned The Ringer or not. Obviously, uh, Matt has a has a show with The Ringer called The Town, but we love The Ringer. Uh, shout out to The Ringer. And The Rewatchables has gotten Katie and I through many yeah. a long drive in uh, traffic jams back from Palm Springs and Joshua Tree. So just want to shout out our fans. You know, I feel like that's what we're supposed to do here at Puck. Appreciated the feedback. R- Ringer,
0: definitely uh, one of the OG companies that succeeded. That was a good acquisition for Spotify. I think yeah. they... It yeah. turns out that they performed and delivered, and actually compared to like Rogan, Bill Simmons, and and the Simmons Army of you know Rosillo and and others, they look very mm-hmm. very inexpensive.
1: Totally. Um. Hey, so John, I'm in New York for like literally 24 hours. I'm going to an off-the-record gathering of very important, serious journalists where we're going to you know talk about you know some of the issues facing both the industry as a business, but also just you know the activities, behaviors, formats, like all the things that you know we got to do to survive in this new world. And there's probably like 12 or 13 people there. And there's a breakout session. Um, and one of the questions really jumped out at me, and I wanted to throw it to you, actually. <laughs> this is a perfect Peter question. Um, we're supposed to ask the person that we're sitting with in these breakout sessions a variety of questions. But one of them is, what is the thing that annoys you the most about the public perception of journalism and I'm curious what the John mm. Kelly answer to that is
0: oh and, and this is not I am NOT a natural for these questions because I am um, unintentionally provocative but my answer is that I think that one of the um, challenges and frustrations of mine is that I don't think journalism is a is a nonprofit profession and, and I, I think that there is a um, there is a belief in the world that journalism is, is a form of social work you know that that requires um, people to be um, motivated by some sort of uh, social good. And well, I think that obviously it's a calling for many, I think that I actually feel very strongly that the best journalism is profitable journalism. And um, there are some exceptions to this, of course, but that financial motives for uh, journalists um, are, are very important. And I also think that it's okay to reveal Uh, In fact, I I would emphasize I think it's important that journalists should reveal what they think. You know, there's uh, you and I work in a lot of traditional old school places and there's a huge premium paid on keeping your thoughts to yourself and and just reporting the facts, ma'am. But I think that it it is um, unsophisticated and reductionist to take some of the smartest people in our society and ask them to leave their um, their brains at the door and simply uh, report it dispassionately. I think that smart people are capable of, of both telling you what they've learned factually and also uh, contextualizing it in a way that utilizes their, um, their real brain power. So those are two of my frustrations. What
1: do you think? I mean, I have so many thoughts on this and, and conflicting thoughts, honestly, because, you know, I do a, a show on Snapchat for a few million teenagers about politics and like care a lot about how to create news and political news specifically in a format that's like short, compelling, essential, funny, entertaining. And then I'll turn around and write you and Ben like 10,000 words on Joe Biden that you have to like (laughs) cut down (laughs) aggressively. And, uh, you know, I went to journalism school. I, I care about the traditions of journalism and, and a lot of the hallowed ivory tower things that I feel like are dying. There's that. I think my biggest concern, again, and this is again being steeped in like Gen Z world, is that the public doesn't really know what journalism is. It's not like it's beyond the trust thing. Like you can't trust or distrust something when you don't even know how it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that anno- the thing that annoys me about the public perception of this is I think a lot of journalists, the Sort of maybe the more like Tweety Jacket or old school places kind of talk about journalism as if the public understands it. In other words, they know the distinctions between on background or off the record. Or, you know, they understand that you had to make a bunch of phone calls and like get something confirmed by your boss before you could like publish it or take it to air. Like all of the sort of standards and practices and rituals of journalism. We kind of take for granted and assume—this is especially true like like journalists over the age of 40—assume Like assume the public, you know, you, you get how we do this stuff, right? And most people don't. And, like, you know, Trump was able to exploit that really well when, you know, a story would land with, like, 12 unnamed sources. And he would just be like, these are lies. Who are they? And journalists, well, we can't say because they're, all, you know, unnamed anonymous sources and they're on background. Like, the public just doesn't understand how— the sausage gets made sometimes. And, you know, some journalists are better than others at revealing it. But I do think too many journalists are kind of smug in assuming that this is a hallowed industry and you should understand it. And, you know, (laughs) makes things tough for the public. So that's, that is my take, but I'm sure we'll come up with many more answers and hopefully solutions in our Thinkfluencer conference here in New York later today.
0: Well, well said. I, I bet we're actually going to get some feedback about that. But I think you made a good hard point, which is um, there are many professions in media now that were actually designed for substandard journalists and to produce substandard journalism. I mean, the, the whole the whole realm of you know Web 2.0, Web 2.5.0 was, was premised on low cost labor operating with incentives mm. to, to publish Multiple articles or videos or audio clips in a day to try and attract traffic. It is the exact opposite of quality. There was a sort of consensual brain poison drinking induction that went on for the better part of a decade among media executives to convince Mm -hmm. an industry that that was the true north. And and I think a lot of the internal distrust Mm -hmm. in the business comes from the fact that there were a lot of people who... Called bullshit on that, but were viewed as being um, restrictive to to progress, and I think that there were uh, a lot of executives uh, lost their credibility. And the good news now is that the clouds have sort of parted, and I think that we we have figured out yeah. what what the paths forward look like. But there was a lot of, a lot of damage. I mean, you know, in terms of like the the last um, the challenges in this industry in the last thirty years, the the greatest sin was making it all free. Scott Galloway talks about all that all the time in the boardroom uh, when he was on the board mm-hmm. of the New York Times, and and they just sort of you know whimsically decided to let Google crawl their algorithm. Uh, if that was original sin one, original sin two was the sort of Huffington Postization of um, of journalism. Dude,
1: I was just going to I was just gonna like interrupt you and say I was looking at Twitter the other day and and saw a Huffington Post tweet, yeah. and then like I kind of went to their feed, and it was like. A, a link to a story on a, a pet hair, followed by a link to a story about the train derailment in East Palestine, and then a link to a story about like black-owned beauty products, and then a link to a story about yoga, and then a link to a story about Succession, and then a link. It's like there's no yeah. coherent. It's just like holy shit. Like what's it's like SEO, social media, clicks, whatever. But you know, speaking of trust, there there is one thing just to cinch it up. Uh, The Knight Foundation did a did a survey about this last week. And it's like, you know, good news for places like Puck, which is people are more willing to pay for news that they trust. Like there's a very high correlation between emotional trust in news and being willing to pay for it. And like the bargain there is that you trust the news because they're not selling you bullshit and they're not trying to sell you skincare <laughs> alongside of like, you know, an article about what's happening in Ukraine. And so that is, I hope, our lane and maybe the lane for some future media startups, too.
0: No question. There is definitely an opportunity for us. I think we know that um, people are happy to pay more for trusted journalism than they are to pay than they will pay for, for Netflix or Disney Plus. Obviously, the total addressable markets are, are, are very asynchronous. But where it is challenging is in the There'll always be free journalism. There'll always be a sort of channel thirty-one through a thousand of journalism, and we have to find incentives so that it's not just utter garbage. You know that is um, mm-hmm. that that that's a real challenge, and, and hopefully um, there's an economic incentive that someone will figure out because um, right now the incentives are to to run it to to zero, and that's that's frustrating.
1: Got it. Thanks so much, John. Have a great week, man.
0: All right. You too. Talk to you soon.